0: What are you doing here, Elijah? That is one of the most important questions in the whole of the Bible. I'll give you a bit of context. A few days before God asked Elijah that question, he was at the center of a spectacle. He had called down fire from heaven in front of a mocking crowd, leaving awe on the face of the oppressor. That spectacle then won him adoration from many and opposition from a few. And then the next scene in his story is quite a surprising one. The prophet who commands fire to come down from heaven is now alone, afraid, borderline suicidal. He's traveled 80 miles on foot with nothing but the clothes on his back and found a cave in the middle of the desert and then in hiding essentially prays, God, I've had enough. The journey is too much for me. And then standing in the mouth of that cave in a desert, alone and afraid, God responds to Elijah's prayer with a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? That's a question that God asks all of us. If... In your journey with Jesus, this is a situation that you will find yourself in probably more than once. In a lifetime of walking with Jesus, you will get stuck, you will lose your place, and you will forget. And when you do, you will hear the familiar voice of God asking you a familiar question. What are you doing here, Pete? What are you doing here, Anna? What are you doing here? So that's where we're going to end up today. That's the big question that we're confronting. How did you get where you are? And what is the way forward? But in order to ask that question the right way, we need to gather up the full context of our stories and drag all of ourselves into that question. And that takes us back to Mark chapter 2, verse 23, back to another question from the mouth of God. Don't you remember what David did when he was hungry? So how do you live in a season of joy? Well, first of all, you eat the bread. That's where you start. Secondly, you take your sword. Now, eat your bread. That is about Jesus' victory. Take your sword. That's about your victory. What do I mean? Well, this is 1 Samuel 24, 21, exactly where we left off. David is leaving the most holy place with the consecrated bread under his arm. And I want to pick up right there. David asked Ahimelech, that's the priest that led him in. Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. So in the midst of the Holy of Holies, David realizes that he is, yes, in for a feast, but he's also in for a fight. And so he asks for a weapon, and he will take anything, anything that will offer him protection, and then he's given the sword of Goliath. Now it doesn't matter if you've never cracked the Bible. You know David and Goliath, right? I mean, this is the shepherd boy who defeated a warrior with just a sling and five stones, Do you have anything here that I could use to defend myself? Well, here's a sword from a victory from your spiritual path, or past. Here is a sword from a victory that you have won before, somewhere distant in your memory with God. This is a symbol of your spiritual victory, and the faith that he carries today in this place is built on what God did in his life then. David finds himself alone, exposed, vulnerable and then God gives him a weapon of a spiritual victory from his youth and says use this again now how do you live in a season of joy you take your sword that is about your victory a battle won in your past maybe even one that you have forgotten becomes a weapon again in your presence Something to fight with again now. In a season of joy, God feeds you the bread of his victory and he arms you with the sword of your past victory. So take your sword. We need to grasp everything that that sword symbolized because, yes, there was the breakthrough moment when the giant fell. But this sword is symbolic of really a whole chapter of David's life. And so we need to know everything that was being drugged back into his presence at the moment that he was handed this weapon. This sword reminded David um, more than just that breakthrough moment. First, it reminded him of his chosenness. So if you flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 16, God sends the prophet Samuel to the obscure village of Bethlehem to anoint the king that he has chosen for his people. And after Samuel goes through Jesse's uh, seven older sons, he determines that none of them are the one that God has chosen, and he asks for David. He asks Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. That's the inspired and errant word of God. Just with a quick commendation on David's look. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence. I'm sorry. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So back in the U.S., I'm uh, part of a community of pastors and leaders that takes uh, quarterly retreats um, simply for the purpose of spiritual formation, to get away from the course of normal life and to get back to the basics of what it means to be with Jesus. And when I joined this kind of cohort on our very first retreat, there's 200 pastors and nonprofit leaders coming from all over North America to this one city to go to this one obscure retreat center. And we arrive and we were given one rule for the, for the whole retreat. You cannot tell anyone what you do. You can share your name, tell about where you're from. Sure, about your family, your hobbies, and your interests, but no, I pastor this church or I run this nonprofit because you are addicted to relating to other people through your function. And this is a place that you will detox from that addiction. Here you will have to learn again what it means just to be a soul on a journey with Jesus because that's who you are anyway. And it was so strange sitting at dinner that first night. And I remember sitting with Sue and Phil. And I sat there knowing that Sue and Phil had this whole identity, this whole way that they were so used to relating to other people, this whole way that they were used to identifying themselves. And yet I, to this day, just know Sue and Phil. I know who they are. I know who's important to them. I know what they like to do. I know where they're from. And I am to them just Tyler without all the dressing up that I have done my very best to add to that name. I was known the way that everybody knew me but when I was a kid, before I discovered that I could pick and choose from a catalog of ways to decorate my name and manage my perception in front of other people, I was just Tyler again. And there was something really humanizing about it. Because as we get older, our identities are supposed to expand, right? I mean, we're supposed to grow into our names, to become more mature and full versions of ourselves, to become more whole. The name you were given is meant to grow and grow and grow, but instead, the opposite almost always happens. Our identity shrinks and shrinks as we get older. Our dreams get smaller. Our eyes go from wide-eyed and full of wonder to head-down, tunnel-vision, narrow agenda. Who I believe I am, who I believe everyone else is, tends to shrink And that's because most of us exchange the name that we were given for a substitute name, one of our own creation. It goes something like this. Pastor, professor, actor, entrepreneur, mom, artist, convict. And that innocent little exchange is a spiritual disaster rise and anoint him, this is the one. Who David is gets derived first and foremost not from his family, not from his place of birth, not from his vocation, it's derived from God. From the free action of a completely free God that this Hebrew kid just happened to be on the receiving end of. There is someone more significant than David in his own story, and it's God. Because who God is determines who David is. There's this key difference that you'll notice in David's story from some of the other biblical stories. A key difference that tells us something so essential about God. For instance, the book of Isaiah opens this way. God says, I've got something I want to do in the world. I have a plan to carry out and I'm looking for someone to do it through. And so Isaiah says that famous line, here I am, send me. That's Isaiah's famous line, chosen. That's David's. David's name is linked first to the free action of God. Here I am, send me. That's not David's story. David's story is, rise and anoint him. This is the one. It's not the story of a particularly special kid. It's the story of a particularly loving God. Chosen. Before you were David, younger brother of. Before you were David, Jesse's youngest. Before you were David the shepherd, before you were David the giant killer, you were chosen. And that's a word that you will find all over the scriptures. It has a noun form as well in the New Testament, saint. See, the letters of the New Testament are written to churches just like this one, all filled with people who are just like us. You know churches, right? Idealistic, underwhelming, occasionally dysfunctional, chronically overpromising <laughs> groups of people. And you know, people. Selfish, narcissistic, greedy, well intentioned, but deeply wounded people. And every one of those letters addressed to communities just like this one is addressed this way to the saints. We don't use that word anymore. So I find Reynolds Price, the, the novelist Reynolds Price's definition helpful. He says, A saint is someone who, however flawed, leads us by example, almost never by words, to imagine the hardest thing of all, the seamless love of God for all creation, including ourselves. See, here's the point. This isn't just the beginning of David's story. This is the beginning of your story and my story in the beginning, before you did a single thing, before you succeeded or failed, before you became something or nothing, before you proved all of them wrong or right, before you stood up on your own two shaky feet or crumbled and failed miserably, in the beginning, there was nothing but the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep with you on his mind. He named you first, and it sounded like this, chosen. The words of Eugene Peterson, my identity does not begin when I begin to understand myself. There is something previous to what I think about myself, and it is what God thinks of me. That means that everything I think and feel is by nature a response, and the one to whom I respond is God. I never speak the first word. I never make the first move. See, we struggle with that because every other experience that we have in this life and this world tells us endless varieties of the original lie. You can be your own God. Right? I am who I choose to be. No, no, no. The story doesn't start with you. You are chosen. And there's nothing that you've done to earn that there just so happens to be a father far better than your imagination can fathom authoring the story and he dreamed you up before you had a say in it. See, chosen, that's not even a word we can really do anything with, not in any constructive sense anyway. We can't change it or earn it or alter it. All we can do is receive it and respond to it, to react to it. The scripture is more or less just a series of people reacting to this one revelation that we will never get over, chosen. David's reaction is recorded for us in the Psalms. This is Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw the unformed substance of my body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Chapter 1 of your story was titled, Before You Had a Say in the Matter. It was this chosen. And so in a moment of extraordinary vulnerability, a moment when David would be tempted to believe a different story about himself, he is handed a sword and it symbolizes this, chapter one of your story is chosen. But this sword also reminded David of something else, and and that is of intimacy. Intimacy. Because if you keep on tracing David's story from here, no one then just immediately puts a crown on his head because a prophet anointed him king. He doesn't leave from there and go to sit on a throne. He goes right back to the field to keep tending the sheep. He goes back to the menial job reserved for the most low wage day laborer. He goes back to being the youngest of eight boys. So when that kid grew up, where did David get the audacity to ask the priest for bread? I mean, have you thought about that yet? This is the one and only time we have someone walking into the Holy of Holies like it's their own kitchen in the whole of the Bible. Where did David get that kind of courage? In fact, the high priest at this time would enter the Holy of Holies once a year to stand before God. The holiest person in the world going into the holiest room once a year, and they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he dropped dead in the presence of God. And Jesus, or I'm sorry, and David just pushes the curtain aside and walks straight in. See, David didn't grow up in the era of God as Jesus cuddling sheep surrounded by children. He grew up in the era of Moses. If you even set a foot on the mountain while the glory cloud descends, you will fall dead. Where did David get the sort of image of God where he could raid his pantry if he was hungry? Where did David get the audacity to ask the priest for bread? Well, his relationship with Yahweh was so polarizing to the norm because it was not cultivated in the temple. David wasn't indoctrinated to the religious norms of his day. He didn't learn God from the priests. He learned God alone in the fields. He learned God in all those long days out tending the sheep by himself. all those songs he wrote as a musician and a songwriter, all the prayers he would have prayed in isolated hour after hour after hour before David became king, he wasn't interning on someone else's campaign. He was living a life alone in the fields in worship and prayer, and so he walked into God's presence like a worshiper. Here's a sword to remind you of that so that you keep building today on the foundation you started building on then. This sword also reminded David of light courage. And I say light courage because there is a heavy kind. The heavy kind of courage is almost always called bravery. It means this takes guts and I know it. And so I'm welling up everything I've got in me to walk into this thing that I am terrified of. And that's great. It's completely admirable. But David's uh, faith is actually built on a different sort of courage. The light kind of courage is the kind that so swallows up fear that you don't even realize that something is courageous until you see it in hindsight. When you see what you just walked through through the eyes of some other people. This happens again and again in David's story, but just as we keep making our way through, let me take you to one moment in 1 Samuel 17. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine, meaning Goliath. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord will be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. That's the light sword of courage. Because to everyone else, it's fearless. A kid is taking on a warrior without armor? But to David, it's just, uh, you know, it is a bit restricting. It feels bulky and uncomfortable. It's just a light kind of courage, right? Can you remember the freedom of trusting God that, that he would be enough no matter what it was you faced? Do you remember when a giant was just another day? when you could walk through things that might make someone else's knees quake with assurance that God is with me and that's enough. It's enough. That's light courage. It's actually believing he is with me and he is enough. So I don't have to be. So here it is, a sword to remind you of that so you can keep living that way now. And then finally, this sword reminded David of power. Because at the end of the day, his hands were gripped on this thing when he saw the Spirit's power poured out like never before in his life. A kid outdueled a warrior. This was the weapon God used to show his power through David in such an extraordinary way. This was one of those events that enters your life that is so profound that it rewrites the next few pages, Right? Because it sends you on a different trajectory. I was going one way, the, the power of the Spirit hit me here, and now I'm being sent on a different trajectory than the one I was headed on. So when you are tempted to believe on your, that you are completely on your own, that all you see is actually all there is, here's a sword to remind you that there's more. That the Spirit's power isn't a tease, but a promise. That God is not a one-hit wonder, He is a finisher. And that's the story that you're in the midst of. So where does David stand when that all of that gets placed back into his hands in the form of a sword? I don't mean geographically where does he stand? I mean where does he stand in the context of his own story? Here's where. First, he's on the run because it's become evident that the future king of Israel he is the future king of Israel and the current one is quite threatened. And the anointing given to him as a kid is finally coming to fruition. Only it's coming to fruition in a way that's more difficult and more uncomfortable than he ever imagined. And so God places this sword in his hands to remind him, David, you're chosen. And those circumstances sent him fleeing out of the city on foot alone. So here he stands isolated, alone in an open field in the setting of his own intimacy with God, the place where he cultivated that relationship. And in that place, God hands him the sword to remind him, you're home here. You know me here. You've been here before. And the temptation at the moment is to form his own sense of security, right? It's to go ally with another nation, to power up, to form a coup in some way. And so God hands him this sword to say, light, courage, rely on me again. I was enough then, I'm still enough. Oh, and here's true joy. You can start celebrating now before the breakthrough. You can start the celebration while you're still waiting. So God puts a memorial of the Spirit's power in his hands to say, am I finished yet? You know me, David, am I finished yet? Will you trust me enough to celebrate while you still wait on me to bring the next breakthrough? Will you trust in me enough to celebrate that I'll do again what I did then? Don't you see it? Come on in and sit down and eat at this feast. That's about Jesus' victory. Oh, and don't leave without taking your sword. That's about your victory. There's a spiritual battle that's been won in your past, and then that weapon is given back to you in the present to fight with again. That's how you live in a season of joy. Here's how I always hear Pete saying this Your destiny is hidden in your history. So, can you remember discovering your chosenness before God? Where and how did you cultivate intimacy with God? What are the giants you're facing right now, and what might it mean to take on those fights with the light kind of courage? And have you ever known the power of the Spirit? I wonder what, in your personal history, God is trying to drag into your personal present. I wonder what the sword might be that he is placing in your hands this morning. Remember. That's the most frequently repeated command in the whole of the Bible. Remember. In fact, here's the top two. Remember and rejoice. Isn't that interesting? It's not do. It's not do not. It's not go. It's not obey. It's remember. Because in the long journey of the spiritual life, we tend to forget we tend to lose our place in our own story. We tend to lose the plot of our own redemption. And psychologically speaking, there are two different kinds of memories. So, so the first kind is this. When I was in the third grade, I learned my multiplication tables. And so if you said to me, Tyler, what is two times two? I could easily say to you, four. And the reason that I'm able to do that is because of memory. Memory. I I could do that despite the fact it's been decades since I've taken the pop quiz because memory is much more powerful than we typically give it credit for. But there's a second kind of memory, and it's this, that in that same year that I learned my multiplication tables, I had my birthday party at the skate center, like the roller skating rink. I don't know what you guys call it here, but try to go there with me. So (laughs) I can remember specifically the kind of cake I had the friends who were there. I could tell you a couple songs from the DJ's playlist. I had a bowl cut at that time in my life. Do you guys have those in this country, or is that just an American gem? I, 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 I had a bowl cut with a little undershave, so I could pull it up on the side just, just so you knew I had a past. And I can remember skating around the skating rink on my birthday, and when I would go around the left turn, I would do a little flick, just to give the ladies a peek, just so they knew that there was more to me than meets the eye. So how am I able to, to recall all of those details? Because of memory. Because memory is much more powerful than we give it credit for. But there's two kinds of memory. And that's why it feels different to remember my birthday than it does to remember my multiplication tables. Because there are different neural pathways being traveled in my brain when I remember each of those things. When, when you ask me what is two times two, a certain neural pathway gets traveled in my brain, I pull a card in my, in my intellect with only information on it, and then I respond. I have no emotional response to it. But when you ask me about my birthday, I travel a different pathway, and I pull a card that doesn't just have information, it has an experience on it. And that activates something emotional within me. It pulls things I felt in the midst of that experience back into my present. There's two kinds of memories. So God asks this question What are you doing here, Elijah? I told you that we would get back here. Back to that lonely, exhausted prophet in hiding, lost in the middle of his own story. One of the most powerful prophets in history lost the plot. I find that helpful, I find that comforting. What are you doing here, Elijah? What brought you here? And he remembers, but at first it's the multiplication tables kind of memories, not the skate center kind, right? He starts rattling off all the facts to God, but those facts are just information that are just coming alive in his mind. God wants a story to come alive in his bones. So, what are God's instructions to the forgetful, the tired? the distracted, and the bored. 1 Kings 19, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Retrace the steps that got you here, Elijah. See the places of your spiritual breakthroughs, the markers of how far I've carried you, the milestones of my faithfulness in your life. Go back the way you came so I can wake your memory up. So I can drag your past into your present and then send you into a living future. Remember. There's such a rich biblical history to this command to remember, but we don't have a ton of time. So I'm just going to give you one highlight. This is Psalm 114. It reads this. When Israel came out of Egypt, the sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The mountains leaped like like rams. The hills like lambs. Now, the Bible is the greatest book ever written, but it's not because of the potency of the writing. I mean, for the most part, you've got to admit, it's just the facts, right? Then Jesus walked on water. That's just the facts. Then the icy chill shot up the big toe all the way up the spine of the undercover Messiah. That is how Hemingway would have written it, right? But the Bible mostly just the facts, except for this one glaring exception to the rule, remembering. There's a reason that Psalm 114 doesn't say, then we made it out of Egypt, and it seemed as if God might have been key in the process. It says, the sea ran away with its tail tucked, and the mountains leaped out of our way. That's because this isn't just written to preserve the facts. It's written to engage the memory. It's written to pull the past into the present so that we can live in light of this. So that what lived in our bones then can live in our bones now. So that future generations who are bored and distracted and stuck and tired with God can know definitively that when I say Yahweh, I'm not talking about a set of philosophical facts that you might find helpful when you're stuck. I'm talking about the one that makes the ocean dance and the mountains leap. Right? That's what makes the incarnation such a beautiful idea because if all we lacked was the right information about God, he would have dropped down a few flashcards. But instead he came and lived as a person. See, Jesus, among other things, means that God understands and respects the power of of memory. That he gave us felt experiences of his being. It's not only that I can memorize true facts about God's love. It's that I can experience his love. It's not only that I can bubble in the right answers on the divine pop quiz. It's that I know in my spiritual journey up to this point that God listens when I pray. That feeling alone never actually means the absence of God. That in the hands of God, somehow my weaknesses become my greatest strengths and my strengths bow down to my weaknesses. But if you haven't experienced those things, then they cannot live in you. It doesn't matter if you can rattle off every right answer. If you haven't experienced them, if you've never felt loved by God, if you've never felt forgiven by God, if you've never felt trusted or believed in or authoritative or powerful in the eyes of God, then that life cannot live in you. And so if if that's you, if you're outside of this story, it's an invitation to come in and to experience it. But if you do know this God, then there's an invitation here to remember. Go back the way you came. See, when, when we get spiritually stuck, we stop remembering. We forget where we are. We forget who's brought us. We forget how we've been fathered by God. The psychologist Kurt Thompson writes, Loving God is autobiographical. It is about remembering our past and anticipating our future. It is about a God who will not be kept at a distance, but uses each of our stories to confront, terrify, comfort, convict, and woo us. The backwards way forward in the kingdom of God is to remember the past. Let that memory come alive in you in the present and then send you into a truer future. In a phrase, it is this. Take your sword. There is none like it. There's a victory that's been won in your past that is effective for your present. There's a weapon you've forgotten that carries power at the moment. Pick it back up. Here's how you live in a season of joy. Go back the way you came. I'd like to, let's stop here. Let's invite the Spirit now. You don't have to stand up. I just want to guide us through a reflection. I want to ask God to make this personal for us. Maybe just posture yourself to turn your attention completely to Him, whatever that might mean for you. Holy Spirit, will you come and speak? Will you do in each of us what you did in David? place a sword in the hand of every individual in this room I'm just going to guide you through a reflection ask the spirit to speak to you through it pay attention to your memory first remember the past God what of my past do you want me to remember today chosenness something from my first recognition of you, something of my first love, intimacy, the faces that guided me or an experience that was pivotal, a, a practice like journaling or scripture or silence or prayer that was a meeting place for me and you. Light courage, like a good time when faith wasn't a yes but, it was an of course, it was easy, it was almost all there is. Power, a breakthrough in my past, a time when I saw you do something that pivoted my life, a moment that fell like a rock into the center of my being and then sent ripples all throughout me. God, what of my past do you want me to remember today? An experience of the Father's love that I've quickly forgotten, that wound inflicted on me that you've not given up on healing that word of affirmation from someone I admire that was too quickly drowned out by the voices of self-condemnation and self-proving, that hardship that Jesus endured with me, that breakthrough of the Spirit's power. God, what from my past do you want me to remember today?